from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast On Wednesday the 7th of February the Gujarat Assembly passed a resolution which urged the state government to ensure the effective implementation of its decision to incorporate teachings from the Shrimad Bhagavad Gita into the school curriculum In 2023, the State Education Department had announced that the principles and values presented in the holy text would be taught in schools from classes 6 to 12. No political party had opposed this at the time. The state's education minister said that the Gita will be introduced in the form of story and recitation. He said it will be included in the first language textbook as stories and recitations from classes 9 to 12. The only objection by the opposition was that the resolution needn't have been passed at all by the Gujarat Assembly. As one opposition leader told the Times of India, it's like the government itself asking the government to do the job properly. In today's episode, we're in conversation with author and mythologist Devdutt Patnaik about why teaching children the Gita isn't as easy as it sounds. Devdutt himself has written a book titled My Gita, which seeks to interpret the Gita for the modern age. He's also written multiple books on mythological texts for children. In today's episode, he talks about the complexities of the Gita and why it's not just a motivational book as many claim it is. We started by asking Devdutt about why the book isn't viewed as an educational text typically. So, first let's talk about the Bhagavad Gita itself. We have one state wanting to ensure that its students are taught the Gita as part of the curriculum. Why isn't the Bhagavad Gita viewed as a sort of educational text typically? I think uh anything can become an educational text uh, it is just that uh, in a secular state uh, religious documentation uh, religious material uh, people are a little wary of it um, and uh, bhagavad gita will come what within what is called a hindu uh, sacred document Uh, so people may ask, why aren't you taking some lines from the Quran? Why are you not taking lines from the Buddhist texts, from the Jain texts, from the uh, Christian Gospels? And that's a difficult question to answer. And I think as a secular state, most people keep it out of their uh, curriculum. Even though there may be ideas, and you want to educate children about culture in India, culture becomes a complicated topic, and uh, religion is a contentious issue. and i think that's what um, the reason why bhagavad gita is not kept in as part of school curriculum generally and even if we have to um, focus just on the bhagavad gita how easy or difficult it is to teach it uh, to bring it in a curriculum see what's the key performance indicator of knowing the bhagavad gita nobody knows that right uh, does it make you a nice person because you know you will find all these gurujis who teach bhagavad gita not necessarily nice people it, it can be applied to anything right uh, if i tell you that you know what's the key performance indicator of knowing the quran does it make you a nice person what is the key performance indicator of making for me a religious text is a good text and you imbibe the text if it transforms you into a nice person usually it usually turns you into a you know pompous hotty person who seems to be you know deriving power through association with a religious text when it comes to religious text it's very prob- it's very difficult to know how you have understood the text uh, because it has, the purpose is to make you a nice person and a good person and good human being Uh, and if that was so simple then we could have just sort of put children through this conveyor belt and put them through these religious uh, education and they would all turn out to be wonderful things once you get uh, transformed into a nice person then somehow the religion doesn't become important you outgrow the religious framework you realize that it is just a springboard to take you to the next level and you don't get so attached to it so spirituality is complicated that way 
uh, you sort of rise above it if you really get it. Um, but these are complex ideas. And I think educational system is very different. Like you study physics, at the end of it, you can solve physics problems. If you study chemistry, you can solve problems. You have in language, they'll check comprehension abilities, grammar. Uh, how do you check uh, a religious scriptures understanding? You really treat it like literature. You'll just read it as literature. I mean, I don't see any difference between teaching literature and a religious scripture because it will be approached as uh, literature. David, you've written in the past also about why the Gita shouldn't be viewed outside the Mahabharata as this solely philosophical text or, or this motivational text that it often is on our reels and in on YouTube videos these days. Can you explain why you would say that? This is really 19th century, 18th, 19th century phenomena. When the British came to India, they were trying to understand India and they were trying to understand the subjects. They wanted to control the subjects, so they wanted to understand. And religion was a very big thing at that time. And they wanted to understand religion as a as a construct. It's only two, three hundred years old, the way we understand religion today. And the British uh, first read the Vedas and found it very complicated and couldn't understand the polytheism. It was very complicated. And then they stumbled upon the Bhagavad Gita and they said, hey, and they realized the Bhagavad Gita is in many ways seen as a summary of Vedic uh, Upanishads. And uh, at least is used by Adi Shankaracharya is the first man 1200 years ago who said that Bhagavad Gita is to be considered as a scripture that explains Vedanta, which is the final philosophy of the Vedas. And then the British come along and say that, you know, this is a nice clean book. There is a one character, there's one God. It's more monotheistic. And they had this thesis that just as the ancient Greeks uh, were polytheistic and then the Roman Empire became Christian, they said, uh, you know, civilization happens when polytheists become monotheists. And they argued that Hinduism makes its journey from polytheistic Vedism to monotheistic Bhagavad Gitaism, if I might say that. And they liked the scriptures. They loved the translations. Uh, Edwin Arnold, uh, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1820s or 30s, translates it in English in poetic format. He's also the one who brought Buddha to the West. And they're very different in nature. Buddha is very pacifist. Bhagavad Gita is about war. And it's a very, it catches and fires the imagination of theosophists and all these kind of people, mysticism, Eastern mysticism. And it aligns that, oh, Hindus are very monotheistic. And when the national movement happens in India, you have whether it's Lokmanya Tilak, Bal Gangadhar Tilak, Gandhi, Nehru, Savarkar, uh, Ambedkar, all of them are referring to this book because, you know, really Hinduism did not have one philosophical book. And everybody sort of jumped into this bandwagon and says, hey, this is the uh, philosophical book that sort of unites. And then Vedanta became, uh, you know, already was in conversation. So it sort of came together as part of, uh, you know, the Indian national project. So at that time, in, suddenly Hinduism had a book, you know, Christianity always had a book, Sikhism had a book, Buddhism had a book, everybody had a book. Now Hinduism had a book. And I think that sort of excited a lot of the founding fathers of the nation. Gandhi saw it, you know, even though it was a book about on the edge of violence, he saw it as a book for, which inspired him to be nonviolent. Ambedkar looked at it and said, this talks about caste and he brought out the caste angle of it. Um, so everybody saw it differently, you know, so suddenly you have uh, this book being seen in isolation, not as part of the epic. And for me as a mythologist, that's very strange because it's a conversation which happens in the battlefield. The problem is very peculiar. People always say it's a book about violence. 
It's not about violence. It's about should I kill my relatives for property? That's the question. It's as simple as that. My relatives are in front of me and if I kill them, is it right or wrong? And he's asking this moral and ethical question. So he doesn't care. If they were not relatives, it doesn't matter. So it's not a universal idea. It's a very particular problem that is being addressed. And it's being addressed and then Krishna sort of opens up and talks about Atma and the soul and the body in the second chapter and then he sort of takes it into yoga and he talks about yajna and he sort of introduces all Vedic elements in it. And so people say that it is Indian philosophy but um, it's a kind of a applied Indian philosophy in a particular context and a context which makes sense only when you read the Mahabharata. In fact, the first chapter is about Dhritarashtra saying, you know, what's happening in the battlefield. You need to know who is Dhritarashtra. You need to know who is Sanjay. You need to know the names he's talking about. So you need to know the Mahabharata. This is not a conversation that happens in the Ramayana. Devdut, you've written uh, extensively on, on Gita. And apart from your articles, you've also written a book, My Gita, which is not uh, like a literal verse-by-verse -verse translation, if I remember right, but it looks at it more thematically. How did you go about demystifying the Gita? You know, when you approach it analytically, if you go by the book, it's not written like the modern book where there's a introduction, conclusion, chapter-wise progression of ideas. It's not written like that. In fact, chapter 2 is like literally the summary of the whole book. Chapter 18 seems to be like the entire summary of the book. So really, if you read 2 and 18 out of the 18 chapters, you're like, uh, you know, I do I need to read the rest of it. There are three chapters which only describe the infinite divine. There's one chapter which talks about bhakti. Suddenly bhakti appears in the middle of the narrative. Um, so you, it's not written in the way we are conditioned. So you can actually take one paragraph and spend hours discussing it. Because it's rich in symbolism, metaphor, allusions. And some verses are just really, uh, they can be even problematic. They will be talking on Varana. It's about categorization of roles and responsibilities in society. Uh, you know, Shudras have to do this and Brahmins have to do that and Kshatriyas have to do this. Suddenly food is being discussed. Suddenly breath work is being discussed. So you have these kind of scattered ideas. It can be really, I don't think anybody wanted to call it out that it's a little confusing and it's a little overwhelming. And I was like, okay, let me just go through it and figure out what is the broad idea and then take a person journey by journey and sort of slice and dice it in such a way that you take your understand. You know, what is a yajna? When you say yajna, what does it mean? When you say yoga, what does it mean? When you say dharma, what does it mean? Um, and all these words have uh, histories. They don't mean the same thing in different periods of history. You know, nowadays we'll say sannyasi and tyagi in a very casual way, but um, in the Gita, sannyasa and tyag is seen differently. And you have to contextualize it. When was this book written? It makes sense. Really, it makes sense when you realize, hey, there was Buddhism before this. And, and this is perhaps a reaction to Buddhism. And what is Buddhism saying? Um, you, if you understand the history of India, you understand where this uh, Bhagavad Gita emerges. And you understand it better. So I wanted people to see it from all those angles so they understand it better. If you see even the Gurujis, they will pick and choose certain verses and say, we're going to discuss these seven verses today. In many ways, it's like if you read the Gospels, you can't read the Gospels cover to cover. The New Testament is a set of letters and uh, articles and commentaries, and they're just put together. So you have to read each one. You know, can there be suddenly a poetry in the middle of it? And you can't really read it sequentially. You can't read the Quran sequentially. It's not like a series of stories that plot points which take you from point A to point B or idea buildups the way we write it. The Quran is just organized in terms of length, longer versus first, shorter versus. It's very difficult to read it like a modern book. 
so these things are something that people don't talk about and do they don't have the courage to call it out and i was like no no i want to explain it to i'm interested in the reader and i want the reader to get it and you know i would see all these people pretending to say that oh we have understood the gita i'm like but you're not a nice person which means you've not understood the gita you know i have this theory that if you can memorize the gita you're a parrot you know just by chanting some few sanskrit hymns and looking pompous and smug about it you are still a pompous and smug person so clearly the gita hasn't gone in i suppose to put it then in a textbook is in some way to find uh, to sermonize the gita um but whereas you clearly say that it is not anything but but a private conversation say taking place between a warrior in crisis and and a wise charioteer right between arjuna and krishna so if there is no message for humanity at large um then how do you make a textbook chapter out of it and you know how do you draw these self help uh, answers for children See Hinduism is not a proselytizing religion it is not a missionary religion there is nothing to sell that's an important point to remember we may have pracharaks nowadays who go around selling an idea but there is no concept of a paigambar or a messenger who has a message for humanity that's the nature of christianity that's the nature of islam there is an evangelical there's a good word to give it to human beings hinduism is not designed that way when you have a crisis you go to the guruji the guruji will help you and really the answers are in these books and they'll sort of it's a private conversation that you have with yourself you go through like arjun go through a crisis and somehow an answer finds you but there is no um, teaching children to be hindu these are all new ideas which are emerging in these new political contexts because uh, what applies to a north indian doesn't apply to a south indian what applies to a a uh, person who is rich doesn't apply to a poor it's a very diverse religion it's very organic you're trying to create a pan indian document and then you suddenly you realize there's no book if you take hindi then the south will get angry if you take south indian the north indian will be clueless so now you've decided that oh sanskrit goes across which is not true then in sanskrit they have got this one text which has been of course approved by white people and if it is approved by white people it must be correct so that is bhagavad gita and we will teach it in school so these are politicians who are thinking they don't care for children children will be just irritated that there's one more subject to learn they'll memorize some three answers and get through through it they children don't care about bhagavad gita because it's a complicated text even for adults but you know somebody wants to earn brownie points and say i have established hey i've educated my children bhagavad gita good for them there's nothing they have the power to do it you can do it you know i will not give children eggs but i will give them bhagavad gita so good for them Devdutt says that rather than philosophy like the Bhagavad Gita, children should be exposed to stories from our mythological texts. I feel sad for the children who are anyway exhausted with all the studying. I I would rather they learnt more stories. You know, tell them stories from um, the Mahabharata, the difficult stories, the problematic, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata, the different stories, and make them talk about it. Because stories are more accessible than uh, abstract philosophy. You know, a simple line like Atma, a simple one word like Atma doesn't have an explanation. Um, it requires so many assumptions and understanding. If anybody says I can explain it to a child, they are lying, and then they come up with their own versions that are simplified version, and it really it sounds like some moral science textbooks, like be good, be honest, be right. And I'm like, Krishna never said those things, but they somehow trace it. This one verse, you know, you, nowadays people in Sanskrit language are very clever. They will turn any word into anything and say that Krishna told us to go to school on time, verse thirty three or something like that, and they will just you know 
cleverly say the Sanskrit actually means it's a time and says at 8 o'clock you should reach the school on time. So I think there are a lot of creative people out there who come up with these very clever ways of saying Krishna told us to come on time and Krishna told us to do homework on time. It's all written in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, you know, and Arjun was actually, the dilemma was should I or shouldn't I go to school? So read the Gita and you'll go to school on time. You know, you can come up with anything if you want to and that's with most religious scriptures, right? With most religious scriptures, you can just pick, choose, reorient, reinterpret in such a way and get just shove in your agenda. But will they teach about rebirth, which is essential, which is the core idea, the idea of rebirth, the idea of atma, the idea of karma, the idea of gunas, prakriti, nature. Mm, it's about uh, everything is divine. So if everything is divine, everything is Krishna. The food you eat is Krishna. Uh, the animals you eat is Krishna. The plants you eat is Krishna. So you are Krishna eating Krishna. How do you explain? I'm just trying to uh, see the child ask the questions and the teacher looking at the child. That'll be a great moment to capture. Devdutt says there are many aspects of the Bhagavad Gita that make it difficult to simplify it for children. He also points out there's a whole version of the Gita that appears at the end of the Mahabharat, which is often ignored. But I think it's a very difficult thing to explain. Even yeah, I, mean, I talk to adults, it's so difficult to explain. Uh, you know, violence is difficult to explain. Uh, death is difficult to explain. Here's Krishna talking about, don't be afraid, I'm here. I'm, I'm you know, surrender to me. Who is this me he's talking about? That means it's talking about faith and saying, I, and then people, you know, violence has its own issues. And, you know, when you read the Bhagavad Gita, it gives you the impression that Krishna is supporting violence. While in the, if you read the last chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is very clearly saying, you take a decision. I have to explain to you the whole philosophy and the metaphysics, but decision is yours. There is, it's not a directive. It's a choice which has been given in before him. And he's, he's literally, Arjun is like in this very strange place where he says that I really can't make up my mind, but I, I sort of trust you and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. So it's what happens to us when we are in extreme crisis. Somebody trustworthy comes along and tells us and he said, okay, I'll trust you. I'll do it. I don't, I, I can't intellectually make sense of it, but I will just go along with it. And what's interesting is the uh, Mahabharata has something called an Anugita at the end of the Mahabharata where Arjun goes to Krishna and says, you know, I don't remember what you told me at the beginning of the war. Can you re-explain it to me? Now, I've seen many of these people who are Bhagavad Gita experts and Krishna uh, followers get have no clue this exists. There's something called Anugita, which is part of the Mahabharata, which has 36 chapters where Krishna is re-explaining the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, he gets angry when Arjun comes and says, how dare you ask me this? At that time, I was inspired and in a state of yoga. Now I am not, so I cannot do the same thing. And he gets very angry that how can you explain? That time, we were in a crisis situation and I was like sort of telling you this answer. And when he tells, retells, you realize what is Anugita is not a sum. It's, it, it's an expanded version of the Gita, but there's no connection between the two. Uh, there's no Bhakti Yoga at all. Uh, there is no uh, Vishwarupa, um, you know, and all these ideas are not there. So you're like, okay, Krishna himself is repeating the Gita, but it's not the same Gita as Bhagavad Gita. And you're also not a fan of the way it's been interpreted in the West, right? Because you were not very thrilled about the fact that they quoted it in Oppenheimer and it was this big thing at that time. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita.
lot of american hindus got upset because you know i took away their mojo and that moment in the sandra you know the nuclear scientist was inspired by the geeta i mean this inferiority complex and this white man approval syndrome is so deep it's just shameful uh, you know with the colonized mind the desperation for a white guy to say that you know i learned something from the geeta it's just sad and tragic but um, the thing is um, why would openheimer someone who makes a nuclear weapon quote from the bhagavad gita uh, because he genuinely believed the gita is somehow endorsing violence uh, why would he do that why did he not pick up any other japanese text a haiku poetry why does he pick up a hindu text of all things uh, because he was reading sanskrit and oh so is he seeking nuclear weapon technology which is found in rigveda which is a big conspiracy theory out there when i was reading the mahabharata i never came across this line i am death I'm death. Krishna never says I'm death. He's everything. He says I'm everything. I'm time, space, everything. He never like this dramatic. I am this divine, like nuclear weapon kind of explosions happening around me, and this Brahmastra. And I'm like, oh God, why are they getting excited and open? I have this line. I've never seen this line. And then I checked, and then I realized that is the word is kal, which basically means time. And then somebody pointed out to me that you no, know, the book he's referring to has translated it as death. Why would you refer to time as death? Time is not death. Time destroys everything anyway. Basically, when Krishna takes the uh, Vishwarupa, he's actually telling people about the insignificance of you, and says, "How do, if you are all insignificant, then how do you give yourself meaning?" That's what Krishna is trying to tell you. That you know, really, nobody matters. But then, how do you matter in that case? If no tree matters in the forest, then how does a tree bring meaning to itself? And it gives meaning to itself by being a fruit and bearing fruits on which birds and everybody survives. That's what Krishna is trying to explain. And this death and this oh nuclear weapons is I, I found this very dramatic, divaish conversation. And I when I actually read uh, the lines, I said this is mistranslation, convenient mistranslation used appropriately to somehow make uh, your really vile act give it some kind of sacred packaging. Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh and Sahil Gupta. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TOI Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at toipodcast at timesinternet.in.